Can we bow our heads and pray? Lord, we've just uh, been led in prayer uh, to be reminded that circumstances are there to drive us to you. And we pray the same uh, for our time in your word this morning. May we find that it drives us away from reliance upon ourselves and takes us instead to that holy place where you reign and you draw us into your service. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Do keep open that uh, passage uh, from Mark chapter 8, 14 to 21. Um, But I do, before I sort of kick off, just want to say a a couple of things. Um, uh, After this service, at some point, there will be uh, space and time allowed for a picnic uh, up Jenny Lynn Park, um, the park at the top of the road. Um, If you've uh, followed our our website and, and blue sheet and what have you, you'll know about that date, but it's just a reminder. Some may want to pop home and make lunch and uh, take it up there. Uh, but there is also a kind of oddity um, about this day in that after our morning service, we need to prepare this uh, space to look like uh, an aeroplane um, for the holiday club. That means, of course, that we're going to be doing that after the 11.15 service, but if there are any who can, who can either stay uh, through that service, I guess we'll be, it'll be, we'll be kicking off making those changes around 12.15. If there are any who can stay for that or have their lunch a, a bit swiftly and then come on over, there will be things to do, even if, it, even if you're not here till 12.30 or whatever it may be. Um, that would be fantastic. But can I just check on the timing? What time do you reckon people might find someone up there at the park? Half an hour after the end of this service, so allow two hours for this service, um, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure of the timing. Um, I haven't started preaching yet. Um, so from half eleven, let's say from half eleven, um, if you want to uh, grab some lunch, uh, and if you can come back, uh, that would be great. We have things for all sizes of hands to do, so even uh, if they're small ones and you've got small ones with you, that's great. Uh, Mark 8. I am not a member of any political party, but I do find myself excited about the leadership contest in Labour. Why? Well, because something may happen that wasn't predicted. So much of our news is predictable, but I just long every now and then that it wouldn't be another story of we approached the brink and we just rescued a situation and it was all okay and just a bit dull again. Every now and then you just want something to happen that is just random, that none of the political classes running our country sort of wanted or expected to happen. We were due a perfectly reasonable contest between four perfectly reasonable, nice people, and then history just went boing on us. The kingdom of God, or God becoming king, is a fact or an event that would have been, for most people in Jesus' day, something of a predictable affair. They would have known that it was something far off that was supposed to come one day, uh, and if they'd 
been anything about it, it would have been in that bit at the ev- of the evening news on television, which comes just at the end, the kind of, uh-huh, and finally. Uh, it would have been ho-harm, not important. And we're going to look at, about, at the options for the kingdom in a minute. But Jesus making food for 9,000 people, that would have been headline news. First, he'd been on the Jewish side of the lake, the western side, uh, and uh, in chapter 6 of Mark, we have him uh, producing the food for 5,000 people. Then on the eastern side of the lake, which that's where he's just been when we come to our reading today, he produces food for 4,000. 5,000 for the Jews, 4,000 for the uh, Gentiles. And the question for us, really, this morning is whether Jesus is for us a headline worth his place at the front of our lives, or whether he's a kind of ho-hum item at the end of the bulletin. And as we go into a new week, a a normal week for many of us, but certainly a holiday club and, and special week for us here, is there anything about this that's going to be dramatic, or is it just going to be another predictable week? And to tackle that question, we have to go to the warning that Jesus offers us in verse 15. What's happened is this. The crowd of 4,000 has been fed, all of them on the Gentile side of the lake. Then, after what seems like a shorter boat journey, Jesus is tackled, we assume he's now back on Jewish side because there are Pharisees, he's tackled by the Pharisees, looking for a sign from heaven. Air quotes. Jesus is deeply frustrated and says in verse 12, why does this generation ask for a sign? No sign will be given it. That is... If you don't get it, you don't get the signs that are already going on. And there were one or two big signs just happened, by the way, Pharisees. Then you won't get any sign that you can recognize as miraculous. You have just heard, assuming they're on the the Jewish side, of 5,000 people being fed. That was in chapter 6. God, food, desert, ringing any bells... Pharisees, Moses, manna, compassion? Well, then he left them, we hear, in chapter 8, leaves the Pharisees, gets back into the boat, off to the uh, Gentile side. And when the disciples realize, that, as we start our passage today in verse 14, that there is only one loaf in the boat with them, how do you think they react? Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. Mm. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. We've got a loaf. No, they don't. They start to worry about the fact that they've only got one loaf. And Jesus is frustrated. And then Jesus says, really helpfully, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they probably didn't have a clue what he meant either. Just like your faces don't know what he means. Everything in this short reading depends on that verse. 15. Nothing could sound less relevant to our lives today than the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. We must therefore work out what it is, this yeast, and uh, what to do about it. The Pharisees are the people that we remember from our own Sunday school days as the bad guys. Uh, And Jesus, 
uh, had his uh, stories that put the Pharisees down. That's true. But the danger is that we think of them as self-consciously baddies, like those, um, those villains that you used to see in silent movies who twirl their moustaches and tie maidens to railway lines. It's not that kind of baddie. In their own eyes, they were the hope of Israel. The Jews had been warned time and again that God would bring disaster on the people because they did not keep the law. And the Pharisees sought to keep the law, therefore. Strictly, yes. Rigidly, yes. And they wanted everyone to keep the law, but because they wanted God to do something. And as far as they were concerned... If only everybody kept the law, then God could visit his people once again. They worked tirelessly to keep uh, the people godly. They wanted the people to be utterly different in their Jewishness from everything around them. That's the use to the Pharisees. Let's think about Herod. This is Herod Antipas, who followed in the path laid by his father, Herod the Great. The father had been terrified that uh, there was another who was born king of the Jews in Bethlehem. And this Herod, Antipas, his son, has already eliminated John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is thought by some to be the messenger of the one who will be the great king uh, to come. So let's get rid of him. The Herods did not want rivals, because they felt their genius was to make friends with the Romans and keep the people safe that way. We can't say whether they uh, were looking forward to the kingdom of God in the way the Pharisees certainly were, but they worked tirelessly to keep things even, stable, steady, working with the kingdom of Rome, trying to make Jewishness as much as possible look like the world around them. And all that adds up to worrying about a loaf. That is, the Pharisees and Herod and his crew are faced with real, deep, significant human challenges, and both are working hard to sort it. Just like the scarcity of resources represented by one loaf between 13 people in a boat, what are we going to do? It's almost funny. Jesus has fed 9,000 people, but the disciples are bothered about one loaf. How are we going to cut it fairly? We'll use the knife. I thought you were supposed to bring the knife. That's how it would have played out, I guess. No one seems to say, Jesus, could you just do that thing again, please? And Jesus is frustrated. He's left the Pharisees at verse 13. But doubt and unbelief seem to have got into the boat again with the disciples. These disciples have been with him for yonks, but they still don't get it, as indeed they didn't after the first feeding. Chapter 6, verse 52 says, they didn't understand then the first time round because their hearts were hardened. And that charge comes back in chapter 8. Jesus hits them with with all these questions. Why are you talking about bread? Do you still not get it? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and ears but can't see and hear? So many questions. He is not happy. Hearts hardened, by the way, it's not an emotional problem. The heart for the Jew was just the the very centre of everything. It was emotion, it was intellect, it was will, 
um, uh, everything came together, spirit, at the heart. And a hard heart was something for which you were responsible. Jesus is frustrated with them, frustrated with them. He's not pitying them because something has happened to them. He calls on them to leave their hard hearts and reject what the Pharisees and the Herodians offer. Why does he do that? Well, because they're both wrong. Both the Pharisees and Herod are wrong about how the kingdom of God will come. It will not come by ever more deliberate keeping of the law. Now, for us, this coming week, that might translate into a sense of being different, keeping all the rules that Christians are so good at creating for ourselves. I once asked half a dozen Christians in their 20s what sin was, and I was astonished when the majority answer was quite clear, it's not reading your Bible. The majority view was wrong. It may be important to read your Bible, but it's a rule that Christians have invented. It's not the heart of sin, according to Scripture. What a burden to feel that all these Pharisaic rules need keeping. And God forbid that this week we should have, I don't know, tens of youngsters. And God forbid that what we should leave them with is a sense that they've got to go away and be good boys and girls. How awful would that be? The um, Pharisees have their rule-keeping. But there's another approach. On Friday night, I stayed uh, with a clergy colleague who's in the leafy stockbroker belt of Surrey. Uh, He says that his congregation would be deeply reluctant to invite friends to anything because they would not want to risk those friendships. They are Herodians, seeking to be like everyone else in the leafy stockbroker belt of Surrey. And golly, it's nice, isn't it, if you've been there? Sorry, no, no, sorry. Um, (laughs) If we come over as basically like everyone else, but perhaps a bit nicer, then all will be well. Well, no, it won't. What a burden to be different, to be different, and feel you have to look the same. Can you see the point yet? Both the Pharisees and the Herodians are working hard to make good things happen on their terms. But it's like having only one loaf, all work and pettiness. But Jesus bursts on the scene and does something utterly unpredictable. Let's feed 9,000 people. And he actually involves them in it. It's funny, it's absurd, it's laughable. But it's also urgent and desperately urgent. One of the other things about yeast, and yeast is actually, surprisingly, not a good thing in the New Testament. It has negative connotations. One of the things about yeast, of course, is that it takes a while to work. But Jesus doesn't cook for 9,000. Jesus doesn't say, I need to leave it on one side, a very big side, of the lake while it rises a couple of times, then I need to knock it back, then I need to cook it, and it will feed 9,000. He doesn't wait. He just does it. The Pharisees and the Herodians are working hard and waiting. Jesus says, it's here. It's urgent. Get on with it. If we follow the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, then we're going to go home from church, 
and live a little bit differently from our neighbours. Why? Well, because we're Christians, and Christians are nicer and kinder, aren't they? That's the Pharisees. But not massively different from them, because it's important not to put anyone off, isn't it? And that's the Herodians. I find that description to be alarmingly like what I suspect my own life must look like from the outside. Perhaps it's yours too. Well, let's not do that, either in the general work of this week or if we're working in holiday club. Let's allow for the possibility that God has in Jesus brought in the kingdom of God and for the possibility that life has in the best sense become unpredictable again. What would that look like? Our reading today does not tell us. There's a very famous reading coming up for next week. Uh, and it, our reading today just ends on one of Jesus' frustrated questions again. Do you still not understand? Today, though, let's register that it's a terrible thing, according to Jesus, to live in the practical unbelief that the disciples have here. Even though they've been uns- insiders for a long time, like us, they're following of him did not translate into an active commitment to say, okay, come on, let's do this. This is unpredictable. Let's get on with it. This week, may we face the responsibility of rejecting alternatives to Jesus, rule-keeping when being Christian, and looking like others when we're with those others. Let's pray. Lord, we make it a prayer for uh, our, the generality of the week, wherever it may lie before us. And we make it a prayer for what will be going on here in the Holiday Club. Lord, make our lives wonderfully unpredictable this week. And let your kingdom come. Amen.